So you may have heard the phrase, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's actually uh, in line with the philosophy of someone named Friedrich Nietzsche. You may know Nietzsche from that pretty famous phrase that he issued that, that God is dead. And in all of Nietzsche's teachings, he came up with something called the will of power, in that he believed that most of us had an innate desire for more and more power. And he came up with the thinking that if you have power, it's going to corrupt you. And the more power that you have, the more corrupt you are going to be. What makes this phrase so compelling is that we all have some real-life anecdotes of watching that play out in front of us, real-life experiences. We've seen power go bad. Unfortunately, we've seen it happen all too often in church leadership, in spiritual leadership. And I'm sure that most of you in here at some point have had some bad experience with church leadership. Either they make a bad decision and uh, there's a moral failure, or else there's just such a desire for power that they begin to forget why they ever went into the ministry to begin with. And when you see those downfalls of church leaders and spiritual leaders abusing power, it really does feel that way, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And because of that, maybe you've said to yourself, you know what? It's better to just stay far away from leadership. I don't want that leader coming near me, and I don't want anything to do with being a leader myself. The problem with that is we desperately need leaders, and the church desperately needs leaders. And there's a desperate need for Christian leadership at all levels in our culture and society right now. So what I want to talk about this morning is, well, then how can I be a godly leader? Is that possible? Power can corrupt, but it doesn't have to. And this morning, we're going to again see what godly leadership looks like. We've been going through 1 Samuel, this comparing and contrasting of two very distinct and different kinds of leaders. On the one hand, you have Saul, who was sunk to the point where he's consulted a medium on how he should go about leading Israel. And then we've got David. And at this stage in David's leadership career, he's making good choices. And leadership is essential. It's essential in our lives because in some way, all of us are leading if you would, please stand with me as we read God's Word. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. This morning we'll be reading verses 1 through 20 of 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 20. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive of the women and all who were in it, both small and great. 
They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake, of figs, and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or, or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band." And when he had taken him down, behold, there was spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. You may be seated. So this morning, we're seeing a people in a time of transition. David's people, he was a king. At least he was becoming a king. God was making him into a king. He'd been anointed. But after he was anointed, he went right back to shepherding. And now God is bringing into his life events that are going to make him into the man that he would have him to be. Events that David would never have chosen for himself. And this is the nature of transition. Hard things are going to happen, and people are going to have to learn who will they trust. Will they trust God Or will they put their trust in a man? This morning, I want to talk about this subject of godly leadership. What does it look like? I want to focus on some traits that come up in regard to David. So that we'll see this morning six traits to be 
a godly leader. Six traits that we see David exhibiting as we walk through chapter 30. I'd like to start out, though, just explaining, well, what do I mean when I talk about a Christian leader? So before we go there and jump back into this this chapter, I want to talk for just a moment about a definition. This is from Bill Lawrence. He's actually the president and CEO of a group called Christian Leadership. And he says this, leadership is the act of influencing slash serving others out of Christ's interests in their lives so they accomplish God's purposes for and through them. Now, as I've seen it, and for whatever reason, since I was a teenager, God has had me in positions of leadership. And real leadership happens when you see something that you know has to be done and you believe so strongly in it that you say to yourself, I'm going to go and I'm going to do this. I hope that others will help, but even if they don't, this needs to happen. And as you're doing that, notice what this says. Influencing, I think people are mainly influenced by your passion and your desire to see that thing happen. Serving others, never leave service out of leadership, out of Christ's interests, not your interests. And that's true no matter what kind of leadership you're involved in. If you are a Christian leader, this is about the interests of Christ being accomplished. doesn't matter whether you're making concrete, teaching children, whatever it may be. So they accomplish God's purposes for and through them about God's purposes continuing on. God's not just raising up Christian leaders. And yes, we do. We celebrate a missionary that's heading out. But I also don't want to in any less way celebrate those that we saw graduating, heading out to do all kinds of things last weekend. So this is Christian leadership. And as we go through these different traits, I will tell you at the outset that some of these come more naturally to me than others. And I'm sure that these will resonate with you. Some of these traits you'll see in David, you'll think, okay, I got that. And some of those you're going to say, oh, I really need to work on that. And I hope you'll see this morning as we look at the life of David that leadership may not look the way that you think it does at all. That's why we're talking about this, and I hope you'll see that you can apply this to your world and your life and in ways that you're leading somewhere. And these are all traits that we need to be exhibiting in our lives in in any case. So let's go back to the text now. And we read about this attack by the Amalekites. Now, do you remember them? Paul was supposed to have utterly wiped them out, but he was disobedient, and he did not wipe out the Amalekites. And now they've come, and David had taken residence in this place called Ziklag. Him and his, his followers, his uh, 600 men who were his fighting men, all their families, David's own family, they had, he'd fled Saul, and now he'd taken up residence in this town with a weird name in Philistine territory. But they figured out what was going on back in chapter 29, that when David said he was launching raids against the enemies, or rather against Israel, that's what he told the leadership, King Achish, Actually, he was launching attacks against all these other enemies of Israel. 
And now the Amalekites had come. They raided the city. They carried off the women and children. And David and his men arrived to the scene right after they'd taken away everybody and, and burnt the city. And starting at verse 3 of chapter 30, it says that when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David, notice, he lets loose his emotions. He didn't come in and stomp and say, okay, let's go get those guys. Let's go kill them dead. No. He's weeping right along with with everyone else, he felt what the men were feeling. In other words, he was empathetic. And that's the first trait I want to look at, be empathetic. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of someone else. Now, why wouldn't we want to do this? Why wouldn't we want to be empathetic with those uh, who may be following us in leadership, with those in our household. And I think often we stoic men may ask ourselves before we would be empathetic, well, did, was John Wayne like this? You know, did, did John Wayne show empathy? I don't know if I want to do this if John Wayne didn't do it. But that's not the example we have with David. Now, he's certainly a, a strong male figure. He's, he's an incredibly accomplished warrior at this point. He's a leader and. And we also see it with Christ himself. Don't forget what Jesus did when his friend Lazarus died and they brought him that news. And even though Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead, he stopped and wept with everyone else. It's incredibly important that good leaders show empathy, that you understand the needs of others, that you're aware of their thoughts and their feelings. That's our first aspect of godly leadership from David's example. And then the second, we find the second uh, down in verse 6. So David has whipped with them. His wives had been taken. Notice he has two at this point. This is it's not a great situation. Um, but look at what happens in verse 6. It says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, I read this thing, what? I mean, he had been their champion. He'd been their hero. Such is the way in leadership when things are going well. Hey, you're the hero. But I tell you what, when they go south, let's throw rocks. And David's feeling this. Not only does he have the loss of his own family, but the people who were singing his praises, they were following him. Now they want to kill him. And what, how does he respond? Well, he's greatly distressed. But what does he do? He strengthens himself in the Lord. Not only that, but he'll seek out the ephod. He'll seek out the Word of God. So this aspect is faithfulness. Godly leaders must be faithful. They must remember the God they serve in all situations. Now, how did he do that? It's like, you know, it says, but he strengthened himself in the Lord. Okay, how do you do that? Are you just going to, you know, just kind of, you know, 
I'm going to strengthen myself. I'm okay, I'm strengthening you right now. How does that? How, so what we get in addition to the narrative of Samuel, we can go to the Psalms. And in the Psalms, we get a picture of how David was strengthening himself. And I remember, he is the guy who brought down Goliath. But he gave God the credit. He said, God did this. And then he stopped himself from killing Nabal. And what happened? God took care of Nabal. So he could look back at the faithfulness of God. Now, check out what he wrote in Psalm 100, verse 5. He said, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. And what? His faithfulness continues through all generations. So David was looking back and he said, you know what? God's been faithful in the past. I'm going to be the king. And I know the people are mad right now, but I'm going to, find, I'm going to look back and find strength. God brought him victories. And then he looked up. He looked back and then he looked up in prayer. We see one prayer recorded in Psalm 86, 4. Look at what he prayed. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Now, this is a guy that knows how to cry out to God when things are bad. And let me tell you, right now, things are bad. His whole family was taken away, and the people around him that he thought were his friends want to kill him with stones. Lord, you are the gladdener of the soul. So he looked back and he looked up in prayer. And then third, he also he looked forward to God's promises. And these are all the ways that he's being faithful. He knows the God he serves. Look at Psalm, a few verses down from 86.4, Psalm 86.9. He said, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. He was also looking forward to God's promises. See, this is how we strengthen ourselves in the Lord. We look back, we see His faithfulness, we pray to Him, and then we also look forward to His promises being fulfilled. David understood where his victories came from. He knew that God would have the victory. And he, in verse 8, again, he's, he's inquiring of God, not mediums like Saul was. See, we have the same means to be strengthened in the Lord, to trust Him. And no, no matter what happens, this is the interesting thing, See, we have these quote-unquote successes and failures. Now, putting those in air quotes, because no matter what happens to the Christian, we have the promise that God is going to work it out for that which is good. I don't care how we feel about it in the moment. It's, life can feel pretty rotten, a lot. Somehow, in His infinite ways, God is working it out for that which is good. This is what the godly leader understands. We have a wonderful promise of that in Romans 8, that God will work all things out for that which is good. We've got a wonderful heritage passed down to us in the Scriptures of this happening again and again and again and again. Find strength in God's faithfulness. There's this, this great story about a guy. I've talked about him before. His name's, I don't know if it came through. I had a picture of him. A guy named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a, a Russian dissident. He was a Christian. He was thrown into a gulag. And he was miserable. I mean, I don't think we can even begin to fathom the kind of misery that these folks went through uh, whenever they were thrown into a prison because of proclaiming Christ. And he had gotten so low that one day he decided that he was just going to, to be done. There he is. 
He's got a great, great haircut. Um, he'd gotten so low that he'd decided he wasn't going to work, and he just went out into a field, he stuck a shovel in the ground, and he leaned against it, knowing that the guards would eventually come and just beat him to death. And another man came and took his shovel, and right in front of Alexander, he just put a little cross in the ground, and then he shuffled it away. Of that moment, Solzhenitsyn said this. He said that his entire being was energized by that little reminder of the hope and courage we have in Christ. He said he found the strength to continue because a fellow believer cared enough to remind him of our hope. Be faithful. Don't forget the God that we serve. That's number two. Then three, we come to this third aspect of David's leadership, and that is to be decisive. To be decisive. Uh, in verses 7 through 10, David, he goes to the priest. All these the Amalekites came in and took everything away. He goes to the priest and said, should we pursue them? I mean, you know, he's, he's not in a great place right now. And the priest assures his victory. He said, go after him. Surely you will overtake him. And then in pursuit, look at what happens in verses 9 and 10. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued. He and 400 men, 200, stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the creek. Brook. Creek where I come from. So one-third of his men just kind of tuckered out and just said, We're, we got to stop. And David had to make the call right then. They were already greatly outnumbered. As a matter of fact, you'll see 400 of the Amalekites escaped. That's the entire army that David has right now. One-third just said, we can't go on. Now, why was David able to be so confident? Well, because he had the priest's answer. And he trusted what that priest said and what God had spoken through that priest. You see, sometimes it's clear what we're supposed to do. Sharing the gospel when the opportunity comes. Loving your family well. Seeking God in prayer. But then sometimes you're just going to have to decide. And you're going to have to decide based on what you know and the time you have. There's a quote from... Uh, his name's M. Scott Peck. He wrote a book called Leadership, and he said this about decision-making. He said, the best decision-makers are those who are willing to suffer the most over their decisions, but still retain their ability to be decisive. You're going to have to live with consequences, no matter. But see, as Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, we can make a decision and as long as it's not a sinful decision, as long as you're not giving into a temptation, you can trust that God is going to work this out. That doesn't mean there won't be consequences, but God can still work through the consequences. This is a trite saying, but it's true. Do your best and trust God with the rest when it comes to making decisions and keep doing it. Then we come to this fourth aspect. We find it in verses 11 and 12. And, and look how David treats one of the servants of the men that are hunting them down. 
this Egyptian they run into, starting at verse 11. It says, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me because I fell sick three days ago. Now, look at this difference. Here we have a young man. He was actually serving an Amalekite. And uh, David and his men, they stopped, and they nursed him back to health. Now, he's a potential enemy, right? He's, he's serving the wrong team. He probably expected to be killed, but now David and his men are treating him better than his own master did. Remember, he, he fell sick, and they just went on without him. They recognize, well, he's in no state that causes any, any harm. And that brings us to this fourth aspect of godly leadership, to be kind, to be kind. And this is a picture of a great Christian leader taking the time to be kind. You know, I've, I've become somewhat of a student lately of pastors that really screw up. It's just the way my mind operates. Before I went to the Grand Canyon, I read a book about, well, how do people die in the Grand Canyon so I know what not to do? It was sort of this way with leaders. Well, how do these guys really screw up? And here lately, past, pastoral leaders, especially ones that become pretty prominent, where they've messed up is they've become these bullies. Uh, a, a few of them uh, have made the mistake recently, and I, and I think they're, they understood it by the grace of God. They repented. It happened to Driscoll. It happened to McDonald up in Chicago. They just became these heavy-handed jerks that nobody wanted to be around. And somewhere along the way, they, they lost the reasons for why they'd gotten into ministry to begin with. And it's easy sometimes <laughs> to miss the forest for the trees and become this sort of an, an oppressive leader. And, um, and, and when loving people come secondary to our own desires for more, and we, we forget why we're doing what we're doing. And again, that applies to any area of leadership. That applies to how you treat those in your household. The Christian walk is more about people in the journey than, uh, than success and some earthly destination. So take this time to be kind. And then we see this fifth aspect of godly leadership. We see it down in verse 17. Once David reaches the camp of the Amalekites, they're having a big party. They've gotten won all these spoils. And then we see it in verse 17. It says, And David struck them down from twilight until evening the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Now, this is what you'd call a hillbilly whooping. Because <laughs> notice, 400 escaped, but he was, they were kicking rear ends all night, according to this passage, and 400, you know, this is, David only has 400 men, and, and they had a, a much larger number, 400 escape. But see, when God calls you to do something, you do it. And that brings us to this next aspect, be persistent. You could say be gritty. Be gritty. I love what Paul wrote to Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. He said, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
Endure suffering. Keep going. There's no promises here of any ease in serving the Lord. Rather, he says, keep going, endure. There was a a Facebook post a friend of mine just put up a couple of days ago. A girl I knew back in seminary, and her family's been through a lot of suffering. She just lost her dad and brother, I'm sorry, her mother and her brother in the past few years, and her and her husband have moved back to Maine where they were from, and she's got a little boy named Judah, and Judah was running some laps around a soccer field. He was supposed to run five. But she said that he got to the third lap and he just broke down crying. Well, she and her father, Marnie, they, they, they call her dad uh, Bubba. His name's Barry. But when he saw his grandson, this is what happened. That's him on the right. That's Jude on the left. Now, he's got pretty severe arthritis, but when he saw that little boy crying, he decided he was going to get up, and he would continue running beside him until he could start running again, and he finished those next two laps. See, that is persistent leadership, coming along somebody that's in need, helping them, helping them get by, and it's not easy. He was in pain with every step. But out of love for that little guy, he was willing to keep running those laps around that soccer field. Persist. Tough it out. And not just for yourself, but encourage others to persevere as well. Keep going. And then finally, number six, be generous. Be generous. After that that whooping of the Amalekites... David recovered everyone, all the people, all the spoils, the kids, the wives, everybody. In addition to that, look at verse 20. David, at the end, it said the people with him said, this is David's spoil. Even though these people made the point that, David, this is yours, he didn't keep it for himself. The text goes on. Not only did he give that plunder to the 400 who went with him, he also gave it to the 200 who didn't go into the battle, as well as to people in Judah who had no part in this whatsoever. Not because they deserved it, but because David saw generosity as being important in his role as a leader, to give. There was a a man named Gordon MacDonald. He wrote a book called The, The Generous Life. And he defined generosity, he says, generosity is the conviction that much of one's owns, owns, let's get this out here, that much of one's resources must be strategically given for the betterment of others and for the advancement of the gospel. You're a witness to Christ in whatever realm you find yourself in especially if you're a leader, especially if you're in a position where you have unbelievers who work under your leadership. Be generous. Let them know they matter. Let them know that they're respected. And then putting this all together, be the leader you always needed. Be the leader that you always needed. And I hope that you will consider If you're currently not leading, 
I hope that you will consider some place where you could take the lead on something. You know, we're getting ready to relaunch our men's ministry this fall. And by the way, I was going to announce this next Sunday, but I'll just I'll let the cat out of the bag. Um, he was up here singing on the stage. Eric Headley has, des- has decided he's willing to be our new director of men's ministry. I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm very thankful for all the leadership that's come before him. I'm thankful for John Tollickson and all the work that he's done. I'm thankful for uh, the men that came before. But he's going to need help. He's going to need help leading. And I hope when he comes tapping on shoulders, and, and John Barnes, thank you for all the hard work you've done. When he comes tapping on shoulders, it's my hope and my prayer that you would consider leading along with him. And by the way, we're going to be needing more elders next year. And this is a chance for you to be the leader when the nominating committee comes and perhaps taps on your shoulder, to be the leader that you've always needed. And the best example we have of leadership, it's no surprise, is with Jesus Christ himself. The night before Jesus was going to be facing the cross, he brought all of his disciples into an upper room to have a meal together. And he was going to show the disciples what he came to earth to do and what the cross means, what his whole mission meant. And in this act that he performed, it was a new way for operating in the Christian world. So what did he do? At one point, he drew attention to himself. He wrapped a towel around himself, and he proceeded to get down on his hands and knees and wash the feet of all of these disciples. This is God himself. And he stood up and said, do you see what I just did? I, as your leader as the Lord just served you. And I want you to take this pattern and repeat it in a number of different ways. And I want this quality to define the life of the church. I want it to define the way the church relates to the world. I want want it to define the way the church relates with the church. And I want this to be what leaders in the church do. Take your privilege, take your power, and use it to serve others for their flourishing. Do this. Because this is what it means when I'm on the cross for you. And this is what it means when I'm interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. That's our model of godly, humble leadership. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this good day. Lord, we thank you that you gave us the ultimate model of leadership, that we would be loving, humble, godly Christian leaders in, our, in the business world, in our homes, and God in the church itself. Lord, raise up leaders here at First Baptist Church. I pray that people would see the need, that they would pursue it, that others would see and and see someone they want to follow. And Lord, prepare our hearts now as we go into this time of communion. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done on our behalf. It's your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.